0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 36, Crusades in the Holy Land, Part 2. In previous episodes we told the story of how the Crusades to the Holy Land were instigated and we told the story of how the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem. When the Seljuk Turks invaded Byzantine Anatolia and gradually started closing in on the Byzantine capital of Constantinople the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos appealed for mercenaries from Christian Europe to help to defend Constantinople and helped to reclaim lost lands, including Christian churches lost to the Muslim culture. The Pope Urban II saw an opportunity to use this invitation to instruct a Christian movement to not only support the Byzantine Empire, but also to push deeper into Muslim territory and reclaim the lost holy city of Jerusalem that was becoming increasingly harder for Christian pilgrims to visit. The initial wave of Crusaders were a comparatively low-class bunch of knights and peasants with their families and on their arrival in Anatolia they were soundly defeated by a Seljuk Sultan called Kilij Arsalan. So a greater force of Crusaders gathered that included higher-ranking knights and princes and Counts and Dukes of Western Europe. This time the Crusaders and their Byzantine allies were able to take the city of Nicaea before pushing across Anatolia to the highly important city of Antioch. Baldwin of Bologna took control of the city of Edessa while Bohemond of Taranto was an integral part of the conquest of Antioch becoming the ruler afterwards. In the meantime, the Seljuk Turks were being attacked in the city of Jerusalem by the Fatimid Empire, based in Egypt. Eventually, the Fatimids pushed the Seljuks out of the city, but the Crusaders were not interested in specifically making war with the Seljuks, but they were interested in the conquest of Jerusalem, regardless of whether it was the Seljuk Turks or the Fatimids of Africa. So those who chose to continue from Antioch continued southwards to Jerusalem and they besieged the Holy City. The wealthiest of all the Crusaders was Raymond of Toulouse and he believed that he would take control of the city of Jerusalem if the Crusaders were victorious. However, it was Godfrey of Bouillon who would be the master tactician in the overall operation and as such, when the Crusaders successfully ran the Fatimid's out of Jerusalem in 1099, it would be Godfrey who would be entrusted to rule over the new realm. Raymond of Toulouse would have to be content to return north and take the Levantine city of Tripoli, which would complete the set of four crusader states formed as a result of this first crusade. Edessa, Antioch, Jerusalem and Tripoli would be collectively referred to as Outremer, another name for the Crusader States. Orders of Knights. It was one thing establishing the Crusader States, but it would surely be another thing to be able to retain them as they were surrounded by enemies and remote from the Western European heartlands that had established them. Within the city of Jerusalem existed a hospital that would be of service to any infirm Christian pilgrims and this hospital was established in the city long before the First Crusade. After the First Crusade, it was clear that the hospital was as important as ever. The Benedictine lay brother that was in charge of the hospital was a man called Gérard de Matigues popularly known as Blessed Gerard. He may have been expelled from Jerusalem during the First Crusade, along with all the other Christians. But after the Christian conquest, the Christians returned and the hospital grew in importance and was granted charitable wealth from various parties, creating an institution of some power. A military order was established to protect the hospital and they would come to be known as the Knights Hospitaller or the Hospitallers. And the order was recognised by a papal bull issued by Pope Paschal II in 1113. The hospital itself was called the Hospital of St John. The orders of the Hospitallers would become a significant political order in Jerusalem growing in power thanks to the grateful financial support of many Christians. In the meantime, some also felt it necessary to protect pilgrims on their dangerous journey across Utrimer from the port of Jaffa, now part of the modern Israeli coastal city of Tel Aviv, to the holy city of Jerusalem. So, more charitable investments were made in an order of knights, who were encouraged to offer military protection. The knights were granted a headquarters at Al-Aqsa Mosque at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which led to these knights becoming referred to as the Knights Templar or the Templars. Once again, the Templars became powerful and influential thanks to the financial support of many. The Hospitallers and the Templars would come to see their role develop to become part of the military protection of Outremer. The Siege of Edessa. As one can imagine, the Byzantines under their emperor Alexios Komnenos were slightly concerned about the outcome of the events of the First Crusade. The purpose of the Crusade was to free Byzantine lands that had been captured by the Turks and restore them to the Byzantines. What had actually happened is that the Crusaders had created their own set of Crusader states ruled by themselves and not restored to the Byzantines. So when there was a successful Turkish backlash against the Outremer forces of Edessa and Antioch at the Battle of Haran in 1104, the Byzantines spared little sympathy for the Crusaders. The vulnerability of the county of Edessa was recognised by the other Outremer states such as Antioch and Antioch's attitude was one of indifference towards the ultimate fortune of Edessa, so long as it didn't affect Antioch too much. So the solidarity of the Christian states was strained as they all tended to look after their own affairs. So much for the Holy War against Muslim occupation of Christian lands. However, it does make sense that this should be the case, as the Byzantines were not motivated to recapture the Holy Lands at the outset of the Crusades. The Byzantines simply wanted to prevent Constantinople falling to the Turks of Seljuk Rum. Each of the Crusader states were established by high-ranking Western European nobles looking to bolster their own wealth and stock, and they were only united during the Crusades due to them having a common enemy. After the end of the First Crusade, it would only suit the various Christian states to stick together if their common enemies, the Muslim states of the Middle East, were causing a similar threat to them all. During the 1120s at the Seljuk city of Mosul, which is situated in the north of the modern country of Iraq, a man called Ahmad al-Din Zengi had risen to power, having been appointed as the governor of the city. Chronicles and accounts do not give a glowing account of Zengi's character. Although he is described as a good-looking man, he is also portrayed as a heartless tyrant. His own people would fear his bloodthirsty wrath should they do anything to upset him. But this attitude would also strike fear into his enemies. Zengi was a power-hungry ruler and the man responsible for the beginnings of the Zengid dynasty. Zengi very quickly expanded his area of influence over Aleppo to the west of Mosul and on the borders of Outremer. This would come as a cause for great concern for Outremer and especially to the more vulnerable Edessa, somewhat isolated from the coastal Outremer states. In Zenki's favour, his fearlessness would inspire his own troops who believed that he was the man who could rebalance the Middle East and those lost Muslim lands captured by the Christians during the First Crusade. Zengi was noted for the high levels of discipline that he installed into his military. Islamic chroniclers traditionally refer to this as one of the first notions of a jihadist war, where the idea of a struggle against religious infidels, in this case the Christian states of Outremer, was particularly relevant. Although some modern scholars find this to be a controversial reference, we can suggest that in this context that the Islamic concept of jihad is somewhat similar to the Christian concept of crusading. However, in much the same way as the individual Christian states of Outremer were self-preserving in their attitudes, Zengi was battling to increase the Zengid atabegate, and it didn't matter to him much whether the lands he wished to expand into were under Christian or Muslim control. Zengi was also a shrewd leader who did not just attempt to gain through bloodthirsty means. He managed to obtain the Crusader castle at Montferron simply by applying pressure on the King of Jerusalem and agreeing to reasonable terms that resulted in him not losing any significant military whatsoever. In the meantime, the Byzantine Empire was being ruled by the eldest son of the brave emperor Alexios Komnenos, who ruled as John II. John was making important gains on those Anatolian lands lost to the Seljuk Rum in the previous century after developing a strong diplomatic relationship with the Holy Roman Empire in the west. John was approaching Outremer from the west and was very keen to address the problem of Zengi's threat from the east. John would appeal to the rulers of Outremer to join his cause, but their hesitance caused John to have to delay his intentions. The leaders of Outremer, who were squeezed between the might of the Byzantines under John II to their west and the might of the Zengids under Zengi, to their east, probably felt that either way their domains were under threat and that the best option would be to preserve themselves and their troops. John II was still keen to do battle with the Zenkids, but the lack of commitment from his Outremer allies caused him to question whether he could ultimately be successful. So he retreated to Cilicia to consider his options and buy himself some time to strengthen his military. Unfortunately, while he was doing so, John was killed in a hunting accident and all of the impetus was lost from the campaign. While the army of Edessa was attempting to support an overthrowing of the city of Aleppo by the Turkoman-Artukid dynasty, Zengi took the opportunity to besiege Edessa. The citizens of Edessa resisted the siege as best as they could but with the army out of town, they were absolutely no match for the expertise of the Zengids who took the city by the end of the year 1144. The First Crusade had resulted in the establishment of four crusader states in the Middle East, but now the first one at Edessa had fallen to the Zengids and was back under Muslim rule. The Second Crusade The fall of Edessa was a concern for the papacy and a concern for the Franks. The papacy had instigated the Crusades to the Holy Land and had no interest in Outremer falling into the hands of Muslim states or even to the Byzantines, who were both ideologically threatening to the papacy. As for the Franks, the First Crusade was seen as a predominantly Frankish invasion of the Middle East so the loss of territory would also be a huge concern for the image of the Frankish people in general. The initial rallying call by the Pope Eugene III was met with a lukewarm reception, but the intervention of a highly influential Cistercian monk, Bernard of Clairvaux, possibly coupled with the assassination of Zengi by a Frankish slave, generated more interest. Bernard himself had been heavily involved with the establishment of the Knights Templar, who by now had the military strength to be a major influence on military campaigns in the Middle East. The young, pious King of France, Louis Seventh, was always a target for the rallying parties, and Louis was seduced by the prospect. There were certainly wealthier French kings than Louis, and he probably felt that the notion of a crusade was his calling. However, Bernard of Clairvaux was not finished, and he continued to travel from realm to realm, trying to entice high-ranking nobles and rulers. One previously unlikely target was the King of Germany, often traditionally designated as the Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, but not until the Pope declared it so. The King of Germany was Conrad III and he was supportive of the Pope in his struggles with the Normans in the south of Italy. This is likely why Bernard approached him, believing that he would be attracted to the call to arms. But Conrad initially feared abandoning his kingdom and his throne, which had its challenges. Bernard was not perturbed by Conrad's reluctance and through all of his energy on travelling around the lands of Germany, delivering inspirational speeches and gathering thousands of people to the cause. And this would leave Conrad almost as the odd man out. So after one further attempt by Bernard to persuade Conrad, Conrad decided that he was in. And now the Second Crusade suddenly had two of the most powerful kings of Western Europe involved in an unprecedented set of circumstances. Both King Louis Seventh of France and King Conrad Third of Germany led their armies independently eastwards into Asia. Conrad's army showed a typically crusaders' disrespectful attitude towards the Byzantine lands that they travelled through, pillaging the countryside. When Conrad had crossed into Asia, King Louis's forces were still travelling across Europe, And the Byzantine Emperor, Manuel I Komnenos, son of Alexios, warned Conrad against steaming into Anatolia without preparing correctly and waiting for the support of Louis and his army. Conrad ignored the advice and his army attempted to cross Anatolia in two groups. Each of these two groups were attacked by Turks and thus the offensive was a complete disaster. Louis eventually linked up with the remains of Conrad's troops on his own arrival in Asia. But Conrad was too ill to continue, so he retired to Constantinople, leaving his German army alongside that of the French. So Louis took his turn at traversing the mountainous terrain of Anatolia, fending off regular Turkish attacks, until one particular attack pushed Louis's army onto the back foot to a point where retreat was their only option. They had to rely on the guidance of the Knights Templar to get out of the mountains alive, where they would retreat back to Outremer. It was while in Outremer that a recovered comrade would travel over to rejoin Louis and the remainder of his own troops to decide what could be salvaged from this disastrous campaign. A grand conference took place between the highest ranking rulers and nobles of Outremer alongside King Louis and King Conrad to decide exactly what could now be realistically achieved from this second crusade to the Holy Land. It was decided at this conference, called the Council of Acre, that the target should be the city of Damascus. The crusaders' original target was Edessa, but now this was unrealistic as the weakness of Louis and Conrad meant that the rulers of Outremer could call the shots. The rulers of Outremer had wanted to take Damascus for many years and with previous failed attempts. So they saw the opportunity and the French and German armies felt that this was better than returning home empty-handed. Damascus was under the rule of a Turkish Sunni Muslim dynasty called the Burids, the burids had had their fair share of trouble from Outremer and the zengids who had both wanted to oust them from their stronghold at damascus the zengids decided to offer their support to the burids against the crusaders when they besieged damascus in 1148 king louis the 7th of france and king conrad the 3rd of germany were joined by king baldwin the 3rd of jerusalem for the siege. Despite all of their setbacks, the Crusaders had managed to assemble an army of 50,000 for the purpose. The Crusaders were well positioned within the orchards that would supply food, water and wood, so things were looking ominous for the Burids. However, when reinforcements started arriving for the Burids, they were able to use guerrilla tactics under the cover of the orchards in order to force the Crusaders, into the open. Further reinforcements arrived and caused the Outremer nobles to lose their faith in the project, and this in turn forced Louis and Conrad to concede that the belief was no longer there to see the job through to a finish. And so a retreat was organised, and this spelled the end of the Second Crusade. A complete disaster by all accounts. The Crusaders of the Second Crusade had originally set out to recover the lost county of Edessa that had fallen to the Zengids in 1144. Nur al-Din had taken over as the Emir of Aleppo after Zengid's death and Nur al-Din played an important part in the suppression of the armies of Louis and Conrad when they first attempted to invade Asian territory. In 1154, Nur al-Din actually attacked Damascus himself and took control of the city from the Burids, establishing the first Zengid dynasty of Damascus. One of Nur al-Din's military commanders involved in this operation was a Kurdish man called Sherko. During the 1160s, Nur al-Din sent Sherko to Fatimid, Egypt, in order to arbitrate a dispute. Shirko was accompanied by his nephew, a man called Saladin. Saladin Fatimid Egypt was in political turmoil and the intervention of a Zengid embassy in order to restore order ultimately resulted in Shirko becoming the vizier within Fatimid Egypt. After Shirko's death, Saladin took over the role of vizier but his ambitions were far higher and he was in a great position to overpower the ineffective caliphate of the Fatimids. After the death of the Fatimid caliph Al-Adid at the young age of 20 Saladin moved to become the new sultan of Egypt establishing the Ayyubid ruling dynasty replacing the Fatimids. As a Sunni Muslim, Saladin would move Egypt politically closer to the spiritual caliphate of the Abbasids in Baghdad. Saladin was a highly ambitious ruler, looking to bring as many of his neighbouring realms, both Christian and Muslim, under his rule. Saladin extended his overlordship along the Asian coast of the Red Sea, down to the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula before turning his attentions to the cities of the fragmenting Zengid dynasties. Firstly Damascus, before moving on to bring Aleppo and then Mosul under his direction. Saladin was now in control of most of the land surrounding what remained of Outremer and was now keen to turn his attention towards the Christian realms with his united Muslim armies. The united forces of Jerusalem, Tripoli and Antioch alongside the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller were not enough for the sheer power of Saladin and the mighty Ayyubid Sultanate and in 1187 Saladin crushed the Outremer armies at the Battle of Hattin. The Ayyubids suffered light casualties whereas the Crusader states lost most of their military. This was a complete disaster for Utrême, but an incredible achievement for Saladin, who was now responsible for the glorious victory that had brought Jerusalem back under Muslim rule once more. The Third Crusade. Small pockets of Crusaders still had minor strongholds in the Levant, such as the city of Tyre and the reaction in Europe was the instigation of a new crusade to the Holy Land. The English and French had been at war with each other, but had decided to stop their war in order to focus on the reconquest of Jerusalem. The English king, Henry II, died shortly after the Battle of Hattin, and so it would be the responsibility of his son, Richard I, romantically known as Richard the Lionheart, to step up to the mark. Richard's mother was Eleanor of Aquitaine, who before her marriage to Henry II had been married to the French king, Louis VII, of whom we will remember as one of the kings of the Second Crusade. Eleanor had actually accompanied Louis to the Holy Land on Crusade. It may have been by an agreement with the French king Philip II also known to history as Philip Augustus that both Richard and Philip agreed to crusade at the same time as it's possible that had one stayed in their own kingdom the other might have had to have done too to prevent the other from taking advantage of the absence. Both Philip and Richard were comparatively young and ambitious kings But they would also be joined by the old and wise King of Germany, Frederick I, known to history as Frederick Barbarossa, the Italian word for red beard. These glorious European kings led to the subsequent Third Crusade being known as the King's Crusade. By the sheer expense required to raise an army, those who were involved must have believed that there would be some sort of reward to them that would have extended beyond the wealth of the Holy Land so the pious absolution of sins must have played an important part in the motivations for many high standing nobles involved The three kings travelled across Asia in order to do battle with Saladin's Ayyubids and take control of the city of Jerusalem once more Firstly the Crusaders would need to battle their way across Anatolia and they would do so successfully. They would reach the Cilician territories to the south of Anatolia, and King Frederick Barbarossa of Germany would opt to try and cross the Salef River to head towards the Levant. And this proved to be a fatal mistake, as King Frederick fell from his horse and would unfortunately drown in the river. So now there were just two kings remaining, and certainly they were not particularly close friends. Philip arrived at the city of Acre, which is in the north of the modern country of Israel. The city was under siege by Crusaders attempting to win it back from the Ayyubids when Philip arrived. And so Philip would put his military weight behind the effort. Richard arrived just over a month later and with his military might, the city of Acre fell about a month afterwards. The Crusaders would now have a stronghold from which to launch an attack on Jerusalem. In the aftermath, Philip fell ill, which disabled him from continuing the assault. And on his recovery, he felt obliged to return to France to attend to some pressing domestic affairs, leaving Richard feeling disgruntled that he had been abandoned with the job half-finished. So from a large force led by three western kings, it had now just boiled down to Richard the Lionheart to finish the job. Richard decided to take the remnants of his military towards the port city of Jaffa in order to secure it and have a stronghold from which to receive resources by which he could mount an attack on Jerusalem. Saladin had decided to attack Richard's army before they reached Jaffa. however, and although Saladin had an air of invincibility due to his numerous military victories in the past, Richard staunchly defended his position and even pursued the Ayyubids from the battlefield. However, this battle, the Battle of Arsuf, had proven to be expensive for all sides involved in terms of exhaustion. Richard and his troops successfully reached Jaffa but had to conclude that a conquest of Jerusalem was really no longer achievable. Richard was torn between the need to return home to Western Europe in order to tend to his domestic affairs and the strong desire to not give up on the acquisition of Jerusalem by any means necessary. His desire was to build an army strong enough, but he would happily settle for a diplomatic solution. There were even discussions of a political marriage between Richard's sister Joan and Saladin's brother Al-Adil, but both sides were concerned that the religious identity of the marriage alliance would not be representative of the identity that either side wanted. Richard desperately wanted to attack Jerusalem again, before circumstances would force him to return back to Western Europe. He set up camp again and once again drew the common sense conclusion that he did not have the military might to succeed. On returning to the Outremer-held territories on the coast, Saladin attempted to attack Richard's army once more and once again Richard resisted. Richard and Saladin were well-matched adversaries and their conflict with each other ended in a stalemate. A five-year truce was agreed and although a Christian king of Jerusalem continued to exist in these coastal lands of Outremer, the city of Jerusalem itself remained in Muslim hands. Richard left Outremer in 1192. Saladin Exhausted from campaigning, retired to Damascus, where he died the following year from a fever in his mid-50s. The Decline of Utraman. Going into the 12th century and those regular listeners to the podcast will already be aware of the Fourth Crusade, which actually resulted in Latin Crusaders conquering Byzantine Constantinople. This reflected the diminishing appetite for Crusades to the Holy Lands, resulting in armies not capable of competing in the Holy Lands with the same chances as the Crusaders from the late 11th century. It also reflected the Byzantine apathy for Crusading in the Holy Lands in general, meaning that the feeling of distrust between the Byzantines and the Latin Christian nations that had always existed reached an apex where Crusaders now viewed the Byzantines as an enemy to their ambitions. During the 13th century, there were other ill-fated attempts to gather Crusaders that could invade the Holy Land, but really there were none that were able to make any kind of impact. The Crusaders of the Fifth Crusade attempted to level the situation by attacking the Ayyubids in their Egyptian heartland in order to weaken their abilities in the Levant. But the Crusaders were defeated in Egypt before anything more could happen. Civil disputes among the Ayyubids allowed Crusaders to make strong diplomatic advances during the 1220s that resulted in Outremer regaining control and access to the city of Jerusalem, and this was improved upon during the 1230s by subsequent Crusader action returning Utremer to its largest extent since Saladin's great achievements leading up to the Battle of Hattin. Fortunes changed in 1244 when the Khwarazmians, the former Turkish rulers of traditional Persian lands, who had been pushed out by the Mongols, assisted the Ayyubids in pushing the Christians of Utremer out of the city of Jerusalem once again and this action prompted the French king Louis IX to arrange further crusades to reverse the situation. Despite Louis's ambitions, he was unable to change the fortunes of the Levant and Jerusalem. It would be the Mamluks, Turkic peoples who had been in mercenary service to the Ayyubids, who rose up from within and ended the Ayyubid dynasty of rule in Egypt that had been created by Saladin. This Mamluk Sultanate was able to check the westward expansion of the Mongols in the Middle East. Various Crusader armies continued to do battle with the Mamluks, but once again the incursions resulted in stalemates and uneasy truces that meant that Utamer still existed on the coastal lands, but Jerusalem was still under the control of Muslim occupants. However, Outremer strongholds started falling to the Mamluks until in 1291 when the Mamluk sultan Al-Ashraf Khalil successfully besieged the city of Acre which removed the Christians from their last major stronghold in Outremer. A pocket of crusaders belonging to the Knights Templar remained garrisoned on the Isle of Ruad known today as Erwad just off the coast of the modern country of syria and this did not fall to the mamluks until 1302 but this would also mean that there was no longer any christian presence in the levant any more Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Crusades in the Holy Lands and a continuation from the episode from a couple of weeks ago where we introduced the Crusades in the Holy Lands, looking right the way back to the First Crusade and that first call of Pope Urban II. This week we found out exactly what happened in the aftermath of that with the story of the Second Crusade, the Third Crusade, and then what ultimately happened to the Christian-held states in the in the Middle East and in the Levant. Um, so an interesting episode in history, but ultimately 200 years of, of something that n- never amounted to anything in the long run. The status quo of the religious order of the Middle East was put back to where it was when it started. So even though there were different dynasties of of Muslim um, states and nation states, um, it was still uh, a Muslim-held city after all. Um, But an interesting story nonetheless, and one that somewhat reverberates down through the ages in some of the attitudes that we see in today's world. So it's quite important for anyone that is um, affected by that, maybe to understand the story of the Crusades and exactly what happened and and exactly what was going on in the wider world as well, and how it wasn't just all about Muslims versus Christians. That there was a lot of uh, sort of uh, individual struggles between nation states and individual people that um, that were also factors and, and many different motivations at play. So. An interesting episode in our history and uh, certainly in the medieval story, an essential part of the story. So thank you so much for listening. The Ancient World Cup The Ancient World Cup is a little game that us hot worlders like to play uh, in order to uh, entertain ourselves a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a competition between sixty-four ancient teams, and each week we put two of the teams to the vote, and uh, the the winner uh, progresses, and the loser is unfortunately knocked out. This week we saw the last match of the round of thirty-two, and the match was uh, between the uh, the Assyrians. And the Visigoths, uh, the Assyrians, of course, uh, were the first great um, empire of the post-post uh, um, uh, post, uh, late Bronze Age collapse uh, period at the beginning of the first millennium B.C.E. And uh, the Visigoths, who uh, were the, the ones who uh, conquered Rome, uh, eight hundred years after the Celts had done it um at the beginning of the roman republic years and uh the visigoths conquered rome and then went on to rule um the iberian peninsula or most of it uh for a period right up until the, the uh, 8th century i think it was if i'm uh, if i'm not mistaken um and um the winner so we had votes on uh, all the all the hot worlders which are the listeners of the history of the world podcast voted on our uh, social media pages, which is the Tapper Talk discussion forum, our Facebook page, the unofficial Facebook fan group, uh, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, the results uh, are in and uh, the winners, with 70% of the votes, are the Assyrians. So the Assyrians go through to the next round and we say goodbye to the Visigoths. And uh, that concludes the round of 32. So we now know our last 16 uh, teams in the competition. And uh, uh, the, the matches for the, for, the, for the next round, which will be round three of the tournament, will be the Macedonians versus the Scythians, the Britons versus the Franks, the Babylonians versus the Ancient Egyptians, the Sumerians versus the Phoenicians, the Romans versus the Minoans, the Parthians versus the Anglo-Saxons, the Mycenaeans versus the Athenians, and the Achaemenids versus the Assyrians. So, over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be playing each of those matches in exactly the same way that we played the round of 32, and next week will be the first round of 16 match-up, and it will determine who our first quarter finalist will be so we're really starting to get to the to the latter stages now next week's match will be between the Macedonians and the Scythians so the Macedonians uh qualified for this uh, part of the competition um, by defeating um, they, they got through their group alongside the ancient Egyptians defeating the Carthaginians and the Pirates and then uh, they defeated the Gauls in around the round of thirty-two. The Macedonians, of course, created this uh, inc- incredibly huge empire. I believe the, the largest empire that the world had ever seen, thanks to Alexander the Great and um, the Macedonian uh, influence over the whole of the Middle East, um, came down to us um, through the Hellenistic years of, uh, of societies that, that followed. Alexander's great conquest. So the Macedonians heavily influenced uh the late uh, first millennium BCE politics of all of the Eastern Mediterranean and the and the Middle East and even the Greco Roman uh sorry, not Greco Roman, the Greco Asian societies, such as the Greco Bactrians and the uh and the uh Indo Greek uh kingdom. So so their influence was thanks to Alexander the Great, who spread this Hellenistic culture right the way through the Middle East and, and almost into the subcontinent. So quite an important society. They will be playing the Scythians. Now the Scythians are the, sort of the first real recorded historical recognized steppe culture. Um and they they had considerable influence over those lands. Uh, also, during the same period during the ancient greek period they they also integrated somewhat with the ancient Greeks in terms of developing their own skills into the more modern world um, rather than just being this semi nomadic society, they started to settle down and and um, and advance their sciences and their diplomacy uh, into a much more modern s- style than we would normally traditionally. Uh, associate with nomadic steppe cultures before this time the Scythians reached this stage of the competition um by qualifying through uh the group stages they um they had to uh, they almost didn't make it they had to battle the judeans um for a spot in the uh in the next in the knockout stages uh, because there was a tie in their group for second place, um, but they overcame that, uh, they qualified alongside the Minoans um, and uh, at the expense of the Judeans and the, the Kushana, the Kushan Empire, um, and uh, they defeated the Hephthalites in the round of 32, so a lot of um, sort of uh, step cultures there when we look at the Kushan Empire and um the Hepthalites, those societies heavily influenced by steppe culture um now they're playing the macedonians so will they have reached the end of the line or can they put up a fight well that's up to you so if you go to any of those um any of those social media forums the Tapper talk discussion forum for the history of the world podcast the facebook page of the unofficial facebook fan group twitter or instagram you can vote for who you want to advance to the quarterfinals. So, next week, in next week's podcast episode, we'll count up those votes and give you the results. Listener messages and reviews. Alexandra Masterman wrote in and put, Hey, Chris, just gave you five stars on Spotify. Wish it could have been a hundred. Utterly love your podcast and your humility. You ain't bad for a southerner. Ha! I am living in the States, but I am a Scouser born and bred. Went to uni in Twickenham and studied classics. I stumbled across your podcast and binged to Season 3, Episode 7 in a week. Onwards and upwards, hearing you pronounce words correctly in English makes me homesick, despite your accent. Take care, Chris. You are brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Alexandra. Um, you clearly are uh, a lady with a, a great sense of humour there, I can I can sense. Uh, thank you for the message. Ethan Urch has written in and put, Hey Chris, I have finally caught up. Started in February 2022. The history lessons are a great companion for when you have hours of sanding to do. I'm an apprentice shipwright at the Victorian Wooden Boat Centre in Melbourne, Australia. That's where my heart is, so the naval battle episodes really speak to me. Can't wait for when the naval world gets really spicy, when Portuguese ships get fed up with the Ottoman middlemen, then send expeditions around the Horn of Africa, when globalisation took its first baby steps, in my humble opinion. I want to thank you for heaps for the work that you put in and all the other patrons that really help out with what you do. I just signed up myself. You have my ears, good sir, for as long as the world is making history. Uh, Thank you, Ethan. And also, thanks for signing up. Yes, um, you can do that if if you really like the podcast and you want to help to support the podcast, then you can do so, and we welcome it, because it enables us to buy more material, more books that we can use for reference, uh, in order to make this podcast as good as it can possibly be. Uh, When you sign up, and you make contributions towards the podcast, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, illuminati and you can qualify for rewards such as gifts and special episodes on a subject of your choice um in order to sign up uh, go to the history of the world podcast.com website click on the patreon link and follow it through and uh, you can see exactly what uh what you can and can't get you know for your money uh, via that platform but essentially you'll be supporting the podcast that you enjoy so that's uh, that's probably the most rewarding thing I would I would hope. Um, Ethan Urch of course um has become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week as has Mark Painter. So we welcome you both into our exclusive little club for those people who are very kind enough to uh, join in and help to support the podcast. Thank you very, very much indeed. Uh, well, that's it for another week of the History of the World podcast. Uh, but uh, this week's episode, um, we we should dig a little bit deeper because there's some amazing characters in there, none, uh, none less than Saladin and uh, Richard the Lionheart. And um, their stories deserve a little bit more depth. So the next two episodes, uh, we'll be focusing on a couple of the key battles uh, in and around the period of the Third Crusade. So we'll be uh, looking at the Battle of Hattin. And uh, after that, we'll be looking at the Battle of Ersef. Uh So interesting battles and really, uh, really uh, really, uh Key time in the history of the Crusades, a real sort of in the the real thick of it there with the, with the Crusades and uh, the real the real battle for for that area of of the Levant and the, the city of Jerusalem at centre stage there. So uh, it'll be great. These next two episodes will be uh, wonderful to listen to and and to uh, enjoy the story of. So, uh, thank you so much for listening this week, and until next week, be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.